This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. I would say there were two and a half big stories this past week. Two established as fact, although they are ongoing stories, and one that sounds big and important, but that is a long way short of the finish line. In fact, it's an old story, a half-century-old story that has never been finalized. One story that has been established as fact is that Governor Gretchen Whitmer visited her elderly father out of state last month, and then she's tried to cover it up, but she's been caught. On Monday, the MERS newsletter reported Whitmer visited Richard Whitmer, who owns property in West Palm Beach in March. A review of flight records show a twin-jet Air Eagle aircraft left the Lansing International Airport on the morning of Friday, March 12th, for the Palm Beach Airport. After making a couple of trips in between, the same aircraft left Palm Beach on the afternoon of Monday, March 15th, back to Lansing. The trip is only news because the message to Michiganders coming from the governor's office and from Gretchen Whitmer herself, particularly early in the pandemic last year, but repeatedly since, was that everybody should avoid unnecessary travel to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Residents were told to stay home, stay safe for several weeks last spring, and encouraged to do Zoom Thanksgivings and seasonal gatherings this past winter. Still, for the governor and her chief operating officer and Department of Health and Human Services director to all travel out of state in the last five weeks has Republicans blowing the whistle on perceived hypocrisy. Senator Jim Runestad, a Republican of White Lake, he's been a guest on this program several times, anchored a press conference at Michigan Republican Party headquarters criticizing the governor for being able to do something, visiting an elderly parent, when her orders prevented others from doing the same thing at nursing homes. Quote, and this is Runestad, this is about hypocrisy. The whole thing is not about her visiting her father. It's about what is good for me is not good for thee, unquote. Furthermore, when Mers asked Whitmer if she had traveled out of state since last year in a couple of events in the District of Columbia earlier this year, she said no, when clearly she had. And this is something she tried to cover up. Republicans say the problem is that the governor, quote, scolded, unquote, people for going to Florida on spring break due to the high number of variants in the Sunshine State, but a few weeks earlier had done the same thing. Legislators noted that they have been approached by constituents who wanted to personally visit their struggling elderly parents during the holidays and beyond. 
but held back from doing so because the governor told them it wasn't a good idea given the coronavirus. Republicans argue that, quote, if you're telling people not to travel, then you shouldn't travel yourself because many, many, many of our constituents made those sacrifices for their families, unquote. Now, the second story is that the Republican-controlled legislature has turned upside down the arrangement it had with former Governor Rick Snyder. Snyder wanted two-year budgets, and the legislature gave them to him. Now, because the legislature has no trust in Governor Whitmer, it will send her only quarterly budgets. Yes, one quarter at a time, every three months. Nine state departments would be funded quarterly as opposed to annually, and 44 high-level state executives would have their positions eliminated under six budget bills that moved out of the House Appropriations Subcommittees this past week. The House budgets also required departments to issue periodic legislative reports on severance agreements with employees. House Appropriations Committee Chair Tom Albert, who is a Republican of Lowell, said quarterly budgets would not be used for education, public safety, and certain areas of the Department of Health and Human Services. He said quarterly budgeting is common in businesses and even many families to keep finances on track. Albert said, and I'm quoting here, it makes sense for state government to use a similar process. It will help us ensure, on behalf of Michigan taxpayers, that their money is spent as intended. Governor Whitmer's budget director, Dave Masseron, called the three-month budget approach, quote, particularly silly, unquote, and something that doesn't work particularly well in the private sector. And Masseron continued, and I'm quoting again, it's odd that former Governor Snyder received praise for bringing a long-term view of budgeting to state government, yet now they want to implement a three-month budgeting practice that has never been done before, unquote. Still, Masseron characterized the budgets as part of the normal process of each chamber staking out its position before all sides get together for target setting after the Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference, which is next month. Also this year, Attorney General David Dana Nessel's budget is being unrolled by the legislature, at least in the House, into 47 different line items. What's more, the legislature wants to eliminate the department's allotted unclassified positions. Unclassifieds are high-level assistants who tend to be more political at-will employees. Combined, the elimination of these positions will save roughly $6 million and would take many departments from having six political appointees to just one, the director. 
Kurt Weiss, who is a Whitmer spokesman for the state budget office, noted that unclassified positions are constitutionally established. So, quote, we are not sure what the thinking is here on the part of the legislature. Now, the story I'm calling a half story could be and should be the most important story of all, but it's been thwarted so many times that I got my doubts. Here it is. The Republican and Democratic leaders in the State House of Representatives announced this past week they've agreed to put an end to the legislator to lobbyist revolving door in Lansing. They also want to require financial disclosure for legislators for the first time. They want to create a new bipartisan ethics committee, and they want to demand supermajority support to give bills immediate effect. In total, 13 reforms were agreed to as part of a systematic, quote, ethics reform, unquote, package that House Speaker Jason Wentworth, a Republican of Clare, and House Minority Leader Donald Lasinski, a Democrat of Sio Township in Washtenaw County, announced along with voters, not politicians. We'll talk more about this later in the program, but right now we got to take a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Listening to the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have with us Tom Jipping, and he is senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington D.C. Welcome to the Political Insider, Tom Jipping. Thank you for having me. Well, I just want to ask you uh, about this uh, Supreme Court commission that has been established by President Joe Biden. Uh, What's going on here? Well, commissions are, at least in Washington, somewhat common. They're created for different reasons, uh, usually to study a particular problem and to recommend solutions. And they're usually focused on, on specific problems, whether it be, uh, you know, the budget deficit or some military uh, issue or something like that. This commission is really quite different. This is a commission on the Supreme Court, but it's not going to give any recommendations. Um, instead, it's going to sort of summarize the debate about the Supreme Court, uh, sort of examine different ideas for reforms and what have you. Uh, but it's it feels more like propaganda than actual solutions. And in fact, uh, the only problem that anybody has identified that this commission would be associated with are basically uh, liberals uh, don't like some of the decisions of the Supreme Court. And this commission is sort of cover for pushing ideas that could manipulate the judiciary 
uh, in a more liberal direction. And for that reason, it really is quite suspect, because the independence of the judiciary from the politicians is a very important part of our system of government, and it's what distinguishes the judiciary in the United States from judiciaries the world over. Uh, once you compromise that independence, and once you change the system so that the politicians can have more control over not just the appointment of individual judges, but literally the structure and direction of the judiciary itself, uh, our system of government and the, the liberty that it gives us is really in jeopardy. So this commission, it's going to have, it has 36 members, 32 of them are law professors, um, you know, I, I went to law school. I survived law school. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, I think if, folks who work in Washington in, in areas like this, when you say a bunch of law professors have gotten involved, you know, all kinds of flags go up. Because that's <laughs> where some of these uh, kind of uh, strange ideas come from. And sure enough, of the 36 members on this commission, I've seen different tallies, but no more than, I would say, five or six of them can be legitimately called moderate or conservative. It is overwhelmingly liberal. Some of the professors on this commission have actually written books or articles already taking positions on some of these issues, like packing the Supreme Court or, you know, rearranging the federal judiciary or changing its jurisdiction, all this sort of thing. So you have a lot of political activist professors who have specifically been chosen. Um, they, they, they support uh, packing the Supreme Court. Well, Joe Biden has packed this commission. He has, <laughs> he has chosen people for this commission who uh, very likely will kind of steer the, the discussion in favor of some of these radical ideas. And you know, during the campaign last year, people asked candidate Joe Biden, what's your position on court packing? And, of course, court packing is creating new judicial positions on the Supreme Court that can quickly be filled with judges who would steer the court in a different direction. Uh, Joe Biden, as a senator, called that a terrible idea, but he wouldn't say last year what his position was. Instead, he said, I'll just form a commission to look at ideas like that. Well, He's done that, and I think we, we kind of know what that's for. This is kind of a, a blocking device, you know, that he'll hide behind so that uh, if the idea comes from a, quote, commission, it will seem less controversial, less political perhaps, but it's not. Um, there, there is no problem with the judiciary that has to be studied. There, the number of justices on the Supreme Court is perfectly fine. Uh, it's been this way for 150 years, and the Supreme Court decides fewer than half the cases it did 30 years ago. So um, I think that's what the commission is for. It's, it's a very different commission than, than others on other issues. Uh, and instead, I think it's for the kind of the purpose of manipulating the, the discussion and the debate so that somewhere a little bit further down the road, um, members of Congress can try to pass legislation uh, making some really fundamental changes to our courts. Tom Jipping, uh, will this commission look not just at the Supreme Court, but the entire judiciary? I mean, they could uh, recommend expanding the number of appellate judges or district judges or 
uh, all sorts of things, couldn't they? I mean, uh, well, they could, but this this commission's not going to. It is specifically, in fact, it's called the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. Um, Congress does consider the appropriate level of staffing on the lower courts from time to time. The the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is the policy-making arm of the judiciary, every two years makes recommendations for where they think some additional judges might be needed. You don't need a commission for that. Um, Part of the reason I think they've created a commission on the Supreme Court is because some of the changes that are being talked about, for example, uh, term limits or or age restrictions would actually require a constitutional amendment, not just legislation. And so that's a little bit more of a profound change. But um, uh, these other issues with regard to the lower courts, if you know if there's a case to be made that certain courts, I, I worked on the Judiciary Committee in the Senate for 15 years, and I know that uh, different jurisdictions in the country. Um, you know, do get overburdened with different kinds of cases. Courts in Texas or Arizona or Southern California with immigration cases, for example, uh, you know, that certainly should be looked at, but it should be looked at objectively. What are the needs of the judiciary? This is very different. This is about, um, you know, looking at how to change the Supreme Court, not because the Supreme Court needs to be changed, but because political activists want to change the Supreme Court's decisions. Let me, let me just ask here. this question. Is there a timeline on this commission? I mean, do they have a deadline by which time they've got to make their recommendations? Well, the, the uh, executive order that the president signed says that it, 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 it must re- give a report to him within 180 days of its first public meeting. So the members have been chosen. They haven't had their first meeting yet. Um, but it's it's about six months, then they've got to give a report. And, and again, I want to emphasize, they're not going to make recommendations. Um, this is a very important point because, I, I, in fact, I'm working on a research project now looking at about a dozen previous commissions that have looked at the courts. Every single one of them has made recommendations. This one's not going to. And that, that I think, is a huge signal that this is for a different purpose than your typical commission looking for solutions to a particular problem. Wow. Listen, I have so many more questions on this, but this is going to take legislation in the Congress. It uh, will. Right? So uh, this is just the beginning of the story. I'd love to get you back sometime to talk about more of this as time goes forward. I hope you can do that. Oh, I'd love to. That's, Uh, That's also an interesting issue. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much. Tom Jipping, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., for being our guest. And we'll be back in a minute with more. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are lucky to have with us on the line Representative Beth Griffin. She's a Republican of Matawan, I believe, and she represents the 66th House District, which includes all of Van Buren County over in West Michigan and two townships, I think, in the northwest corner of Kalamazoo County. Is that correct, Representative Beth Griffin? I do Yes, that's correct, but also um, I, I am super excited to represent uh, North Kalamazoo, the city of Parchment as well, where I used to teach. So oh. that's also in my district. Oh, great. Okay. 
Uh, well, look, I want to ask you about your legislation that was aimed at increasing access to broadband-based Internet in underserved areas, uh, which last week Governor Gretchen Whitmer vetoed. And what were you trying to accomplish with this? Why did she veto it? What was her reason for doing so, at least what she said? And take it from here. Sure. Thanks, Bill. Uh, well, rural broadband has always been a challenge um, since I've been in office. And, I, and uh, you know, I'm continuing to uh, just sort of do everything I can to improve um, access in unserved areas. And, and the, the, I guess let me start with the fact that the frustrating thing is that, you know, if you live in an area that has great broadband, you don't really think about the fact that there are many people and large sections of uh, the state still that don't have uh, dial that don't have anything better than dial up and can't check their email. And if you overlay that situation, which includes pockets of North Kalamazoo, uh, where I, uh, of course, represent and, and a lot of Xavier uh, County, which is rural and farming communities, um, the COVID the COVID nineteen challenge to uh, the state has made that problem that that need for better broadband has made it so much worse. Um, for example. Patients that need to go telehealth can't get to a doctor online. Uh, you know, kids that are in school now virtual rely on the online learning, but just so many of these kids and these parents don't have access to the speeds that, that allow live streaming, which is actually 25-3, the minimum. And now that workers have been, in many cases, um, forced to, been forced to work from home, they can't do that either because, again, they don't save their speeds. Their Internet speeds are too low to handle live streaming and increased tasking on um, the Internet. So to, to illustrate the point, I have a neighborhood in North Kalamazoo, uh, Cooper Township, and their speeds measurable are one and one, which is very low, so low they can't even check email. This uh, family, uh, one member of the family works at Stryker. He has uh, two daughters, um, both uh, college age trying to do virtual college and um, it's just it, it's impossible for him and every neighborhood around him has service it's an unserved area in the middle of North Kalamazoo so uh, what my bill is basically doing and and what I was proposing would be to uh, give businesses like like local broadband providers a property tax exemption for new fiber that they could lay in the ground to get to these neighborhoods and down these uh, rural uh, roads to serve unserved areas. And why would I do that? Well, I personally think that um, when you're talking about broadband improvements in rural areas, if if you want to look at the businesses that are in the area that are already down those streets, that are already investing in the community, they know where these communities are because they can tell on the map where the unserved areas are, then, in my opinion, investing in the businesses that are already invested and working and um, laying line in those areas, that, that's a smart thing to do, okay? So uh, the bill itself is very simple, and, um, and what it does is, is it, again, it helps the businesses that, are, that live in the communities, that work in the communities, get farther down those unserved roads by giving them that property tax exemption for a period of time that um, allows them to invest in, um, in getting farther into the unserved areas. Well... Are there any estimates of revenue uh, costs 
to this uh, that the governor might have been looking at, uh, concerned that it might be too expensive to afford for the state or local governments or whatever? And, well, there is discussion around that. And, um, and in, um, in the letter that the governor issued for the veto, which, which funny enough, I didn't get, and as the sponsor of the bill, I had to, I had to go out and look for it. She, she says she, her comments were that um, the speed in my bill, which was 25-3, the minimum speed, that is the federal benchmark for, um, for broadband access at this time, she said in her written response that those speeds weren't high enough, they weren't good enough. She wanted uh, 100, 100 speeds. And then she also said that, um, that this bill would result in, in uh, potential loss of future income for schools. So as a teacher, let me, let me just you know, explain a little bit about my perspective on that. So the governor's argument is, is that potential future loss of, of income is something that is bad, and she doesn't want to do that. Um, my argument is that you can't count money you haven't spent yet. So if businesses in the communities are laying fiber as fast as they can, and the unserved areas are areas that are too expensive to get to and that don't have that return on, on investment as quickly, so you know they can only do so much, then you got a problem. And the schools, the parents, the children, the seniors that need telehealth, the, the friends, the family, the people that call my office that have to work from home that don't have internet access and they can't do it, all these people are saying we need better broadband especially because they see the children suffering and the children trying to get on internet connections virtual they can't do it so this is a problem that is everybody's problem at this point and if the governor's position is like hey we don't want to potentially have a future potential loss of income my argument back is well then what do you propose we do because we still have the same problem and the school and the uh, townships and the local villages are all getting the same feedback I'm getting they all know that rural broadband is a problem, yet the governor is turning a blind eye to that, and the very associations themselves, the school groups that's in Lansing, the lobby groups for the schools, for the school boards, for the townships, for the counties, and for the villages, all told her not to do it. They, they, they worked against the bill and ignored the needs and the wants and the opinions and the pleas from all these rural broadband, all these rural families, all these seniors, all these kids, all these parents, all these teachers, all these workers, they ignored that. So it's frustrating to me as a legislature, or as a legislator, excuse me, to see the need, to hear people's concerns, to draft legislation that's going to solve the problem without expanding government. It's going to help the job creators on the front line solve the problem that everybody knows is there. And yet the governor vetoes and says, well, the speeds aren't high enough, and it's a potential future loss of revenue. And I, frankly, I think it's a big enough problem that we need to solve the problem first. And then when all this new fiber is, goes back on the tax rolls, it's going to going to go back in and, and generate revenue. But in the short term, we've got a problem we need to solve. And frankly, I don't think that throwing government grant money at it is going to solve the problem. What kind of support did your bill get in the legislature? I mean, was it bipartisan? Were there a lot of votes from Democrats and Republicans? Um, actually, it was. It was bipartisan, and um, a lot of people saw the saw the need for it, especially uh, uh, some of the uh, Democrat legislators that have rural areas in their district. They have rural broadband challenges, too. But, um, you know, I, I applaud them for doing that. And um, 
you know, just it, it is frustrating that, that um, some Democratic um, legislators appear to be listening to the lobby groups in Lansing instead of the very people that call them up pleading for better broadband. Uh, when you talk about or the governor talks about increasing the importance of access to broadband, what does she propose? And we're running out of time, but really quickly, what's just throw a, a grant at it from government? That's basically that's basically her response was to put um, to throw grant money at it. And and I don't think that's the answer. I think the government picking winners and losers about who get what's gets what's grant leaves rural broadband uh, in the dust, leaves our rural communities still with nothing, and we still have the same problem. So I will continue this fight in the future and welcome uh, communication and collaboration with Senator Nesbitt in the process. Well, listen, thank you so much, Representative Beth Griffin. You've given a great overview of your legislation to expand broadband in rural areas. Republican of Matawan, Beth Griffin, 66th House District, thanks for being our guest. Thanks very much, Bill. Appreciate the time today. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative Andrew Fink. He is a Republican of Adams Township in Hillsdale County, and his 58th House District includes all of Hillsdale County and neighboring Branch County. Uh, He's a freshman. He was on the program several months ago, and uh, I want to welcome you to the Political Insider, Representative Andrew Fink. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be back with you. Well, I want to talk about ethics reform, but first, uh, I noticed uh, you put out at the end of the week a press release in which you appeared to be pretty exercised about the action or non-action of the Board of State canvassers on certifying the initiative petition for Unlock Michigan, which would abolish the 1945 Riot Act uh, by the legislature, if it chooses to do so, or if not, uh, the voters would have a crack at it in 2022, and the Board of State canvassers refused to certify it. Why, and what do you have to say about it? Well, Bill, what I have to say about it is that I, I think the situation is completely ridiculous, except except saying it's ridiculous doesn't uh, speak to the damage being done to a democratic process here. What happened here is, is the Unlock Michigan petition drive is probably the most successful petition drive in Michigan history. In an extremely short period of time, uh, we collected more than a half a million signatures. And the Secretary of State uh, Office recommended that the petitions be certified. Um, this, there's, there was complaining about the petition drive, and the Attorney General's Office investigated it and found no wrongdoing. So there was no reason... Uh, to to not certify these petitions and get the uh, the language in front of the legislature, other than Democratic partisans on the board of of canvassers decided not to certify it. And I think the claim they make, Bill, is that there was there were uh, petition uh, collector signature collectors were uh, misleading people. Well, I have two things to say about that. One, this is the simplest petition anyone's ever done. It simply said the 1945 Emergency Powers of the Governor Act is repealed. That's, I think, the exact text, and if not the exact text, it's very close. 
Compare that to the Prop 3 from 2018, which I think was over 3,000 words long, and yet people were collecting signatures on it simply by saying, do you want to make it easier for military uh, overseas to vote, which, of course, encapsulated you know, a tiny percentage of the things done in that uh, petition drive. So I think it was a ridiculously partisan decision. I'm extremely disappointed about it. Well, we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, let's turn to ethics reform, which was really a pretty big deal this week, uh, an attempt by the House Republican and Democratic caucuses in mass, kind of in a bipartisan way, to get rid of the so-called revolving door of legislators becoming lobbyists as soon as they get out of the legislature, requiring financial disclosure, uh, requiring a new bipartisan ethics committee, and giving a supermajority support uh, for immediate effect on legislation. And you're very much in the center of it. I think you've actually got the lead sponsor uh, designation on creating the Bipartisan Ethics Commission. And tell us a little bit about what all this is and what its chances are of success. Well, Bill, you've hit uh, a number of the highlights there already. Um, ethics, ethics is, I mean, the ultimate arbiter of, of legislative ethics is always going to be the electorate. If we're not uh, comporting ourselves in a way that the electorate think, thinks is ethical, then we will be out of work. Uh, but in the meantime, it's certainly our job to self-police, and currently there just aren't a lot of uh, aren't enough tools for the legislature to. Uh, to, to do that and instill confidence in the government, because if, if the people think that their elected representatives are unethical, how, they won't they won't trust that the decisions being made are, are good or even in the interest of the people. So uh, that's I think that's that's the best way to, to look at why we need to do this. And the, uh, the the ethics committee, as you say, would be bipartisan, and uh, not just that, but it, it would it would have equal numbers of the minority and majority. That's important because I think there there would be some fear otherwise that a majority party could start to uh, find ethical violations on behalf of the minority party and not uh, uh, not of themselves. Uh, but the way this committee would be set up is that a, a finding would have to be of a willful violation of the of the House rules uh, or the or the law, and it would have to be by majority of the of the uh, committee, meaning it would necessarily be a bipartisan majority because you wouldn't have a majority of either party. Um, and, and the follow-on pieces there, Bill, including the closing the revolving door, I think these are just common sense, and that's why it's bipartisan. It's not because anybody's going out of uh, his or her way to, to make it a bipartisan uh, issue for, for any reason other than everybody should be able to agree that a legislator who takes a job immediately upon leaving office with a lobbying firm you know, was clearly negotiating that job while still in office. And I, I should add, Bill, this would apply to directors of administrative departments as well because it's the same issue. Uh, if, if as soon as you leave office or your job, you've uh, you've got a job with a lobbying firm, how can the public be confident that you weren't operating in the interest of that firm or 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 you know an association or whatever, rather than in the interest of your constituents? Well, now you are obviously in the House, and let's assume all these bills clear the House, pass the House, go over to the Senate. I mean. Do all these bills have to be approved by the Senate and be signed by the governor for them to take effect? Uh, or can any piece of this be done simply by maybe House rules, uh, not even needing necessarily 
bipartisan, bicameral, uh, gubernatorial signature uh, legislation uh, to take effect? Bill, some of it could be done, I think, by House rules, but it wouldn't be permanent. I mean, you, you know, the difference between doing rules and statute is the rules are the rules are adopted at the beginning of every term, and and so it, it really wouldn't settle the issue to do it by House rules. And of course, it would only affect, you know, if, if we did it in the House of Representatives, it would of course only affect the House. We wouldn't be able to say attack the the revolving door between the administration or any administration and uh, and lobbying. Um, we we wouldn't be able to affect senators, and so it, it would be uh, it would be a lot less to do it that way. But to answer your question, uh, essentially about whether these things are all tie barred together, there are as introduced, there are a few tie bars. Like there, um, there's a uh, an OMA exemption uh, for the ethics committee uh, that follows the ethics com- the the main piece of legislation. There, those things are tie barred together. Uh, but other pieces like a, you know, there's a bill to prohibit uh, legislators from lobbying out of state, which unfortunately we've seen in, in uh, recent Michigan history. That's not tie barred to the ethics committee. So not everything has to get through in order for some of these changes to be made. Have you had any conversations with the Senate? Do you think there's a good chance to get all this stuff through the Senate? I haven't started having those conversations, uh, but, you know, the ethics, the, the, the overall theme here of, of improving the uh, the public's confidence in the government uh, has been important to Speaker Wentworth uh, from the get-go. You know, House Joint Resolution A, uh, ending lame duck, uh, uh, is the, you know is sort of the signature piece of legislation that that uh, Speaker Wentworth introduced right up front. Or uh, House Bill 4001 from the Hornberger relating to conflicts of interest for legislators. Uh, you know, those are, those are sort of the first two pieces of legislation introduced. Uh, this this term by the House, and so I know that the Senate is aware that uh, on our side of the building, we're we're taking these ethics questions very seriously, and and I'm looking forward to having further discussions with them. Well, I see 13 reforms are designated as part of ethics reform, but aren't there more bills even than 13? Uh, maybe not. Well, there's what I would say that there are, but we introduced 13 bills in the last week. Uh, along with an additional um, uh, joint resolution regarding immediate effect uh, and, uh, and legislator penalties with that, that require constitutional changes. Um, but, but I would say that this is, again, going back to the very beginning of our term, uh, you know, House Bill 4001, I think, is a part of our ethics reform efforts. House Joint Resolution A is a, point of these effort, a part of these efforts. And I would say that the Freedom of Information Act and Legislative Open Records Act uh, bills that we passed out of the House, I think, right before break, uh, are also a part of it. So I, I would say we have more like, you know, 20 or 30 pieces of legislation relating to ethics reform in this uh, in this term uh, rather than just the 13 or 14 that we introduced last week. What is the timeline on this? I mean, are these things going to get pretty quick consideration? I mean, can you see this going over to the Senate by, let's say, June? Uh, I think it's definitely possible that, that the Senate would have uh, would have these bills by, yeah, by the time at least the, uh, the summer uh uh, what's referred to as summer break, but uh, for those of us who like to be in our district, the summer district work period uh, begins. Um, I think that's reasonable. Well, this would be a major breakthrough. I mean, much of what you introduced this week, believe it or not, was introduced half a century ago in the 1970s, and it never happened. I saw it. Uh, so I wish you luck. Uh, this is Representative Andrew Fink. Republican of Hillsdale County, 
the 58th House District. Thanks for being our guest and such a great explanation of what you guys are doing in the House with ethics reform. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back next week with still more.